Well, amen. He is the Almighty One. In Luke chapter 4, where we'll begin this morning, there's someone who knows that for sure, as we will see. Luke chapter 4, as we continue to study about Jesus through the Gospel of, of Luke. We'll pick up in just a moment in verse number 31. I was not married to Julie very long before I realized that she's a list person. We've got lists all over our house, to-do lists. I wasn't married very long before she gave me a to-do list. And um, we've got lists at our house about making lists, a to-do list to make a to-do list. I mean, they're everywhere. They're all over the place. You go into a room and here's that to-do list. I guess for that room, I don't, I don't really know. But in Luke chapter 4, Jesus had given us all awareness of what his to-do list is. This is his list. You'll recall from chapter 4, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. It's number one on the list. Number two, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Number three, recovering of sight to the blind. Number four, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the good news is that He doesn't just make a list He does what he says he'll do. Now, I want you to know that about Jesus, because you may not have many people like that in your life, that they'll tell you what they're going to do, and then they actually do it. Jesus does exactly what he says he will do. So be of good good cheer, as he says in the the scriptures. I've gone and, if, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. He's not just saying that. He has done it. He's going to do it. Whatever he says he's going to do, he will will do. And now that he's given us that list in Luke 4, what we'll see over the course of the rest of Luke 4 and Luke 5, Luke 6, to the end of the book, guess what he's going to do? He's going to set at liberty the captives. And here's the good news is his list isn't just a list of things. His list is actually a list of people. He cares about People. And so his list isn't just generically, let's set, to, let's set the captives free. His list includes Mary Magdalene, blind Bartimaeus, Peter, Paul, on down the list. To I praise God that my name was on the list too. Your name been on the list? We're going to set him free. If you've been oppressed by some things, been oppressed by some sin habitually, he can set you free from those things. He's the, he's the liberator. We, we were oppressed He set us free. And we're going to pick up here in Luke chapter 4, verse 31. He's going to leave Nazareth, as we saw at the end of our time together last week, and going to go down to Capernaum to set at liberty some who are captive. And as we think over that, the question has to be, who has them captive? If you're a captive, what has you captivated? C.S. Lewis I think made a wise statement. We're going to talk about Jesus' authority over demons. Jesus is going to here set someone who's captive to, to, to demon possession. But as we go into it, I just want to read what C.S. Lewis said on the subject of demons. He said, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same 
delight. So what is he saying? He says there's two problems when it comes to the subject of demons. Is number one, just say, ah, there's no such thing. Or number two, to just get in over your head and study nothing but demons. The point of this account is not to emphasize demons. The point of this account is to emphasize he who has authority over demons. That's the living Lord Jesus. So let's read together in Luke chapter 4, verse 31. When the great light draws near, the darkness is exposed. So verse 31, when he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, he was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. In the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demons had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits. And they come out, and reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding area. Let's pray together. Father, we believe your word and trust your word. We pray right now in Jesus' name that you would grant us understanding by the scripture. We believe it is uh, Holy Spirit inspired that it's the living word of God. And we ask as we approach this topic of demons and Jesus' authority over them that you would help us to deal with it appropriately, biblically, responsibly, and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a couple of things as far as the backstory goes. He goes to Capernaum. It's a fishing village. About 1,500 people lived in Capernaum. It also happens to be the hometown of Peter and Andrew. And for a little while, it was the, uh, the hometown, if you will, or the lodging place of Jesus himself. Archaeological re- uh, evidence of remains there uh, exists even today of two synagogues built one on top of the other. And it's perhaps true that it's one of these synagogues that Jesus walked in. And though it had these synagogues, there's also something else that draws our attention, that there was also the hometown not only of Peter and Andrew, but of at least one demon. I don't know if we think of towns in that regard, but Capernaum was home to this demon, and he had made a lodging within a person there. Now again, we don't want to emphasize in an unhealthy way the subject of demons, but the Bible does reveal three things about them, their origin, their present activity, and their destiny. I'll just give those to you in brief order. Their origin. The scripture teaches us that they were originally holy angels, and Lucifer was the highest ranking of them all. If you want to look at Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 and 14, and Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 16, you'll see that it was through pride that Satan rebelled against God and led at least, well, it led a third of the demons to join him in his rebellion. Those three formerly holy, those one third of the holy angels were cast out of heaven. And are now the demons, as we see here in the scripture. What's their destiny? Destruction. To be permanently cast into hell. What is their present activity? For the meantime, they work to achieve the purposes of the evil one, Satan, and thwart the purposes of God. Hold your hand there in Luke chapter 4 and go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So go from Luke 4 to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
Here the Apostle Paul writes something that will be helpful to us on this topic. He's writing about his ministry. He says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, by this time in his life, Paul had gone through the ringer. I mean, he'd gone through just about everything there is to go through. That's why he's saying we're not going to give up. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, the Apostle Paul was declaring the Word of God at a time and in a place where other people were going around proclaiming that they also were telling the truth, just so long, we'll give you the truth so long as you do this, or give me this much money, or so on and so forth. People still do that to this day, by the way. But Paul says our ministry is we're not going to do any of those things. We don't practice cunning, we don't practice deceit. He says, verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. Now, here we'll emphasize the next two verses. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What's he just said? The God of this world. Who's the God of this world? The enemy, Satan. He's called that also in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. What's his purpose? To blind the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Isn't that marvelous? Wouldn't you say, if you're a believer in the Lord, amen to that statement? It's like a light has shined to you. Now, here's the purpose of the enemy, to blind your mind. Now, here's the truth of the matter. I'm standing here. I can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he's the son of God, that he was crucified on the cross for your sins to purchase your redemption. Yes, we are sinners. We are unrighteous before God, but Jesus Christ has offered himself as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice. And as I say these things, standing here, some of you in your hearts are saying, amen. Amen to that. Amen to that. He's talking about my Savior. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. I've seen Him for myself. I've tasted for myself and seen that the Lord is good. That I trust that the blood of Christ has cleansed all my sin. That I'm going to heaven one day. And in the meantime, I'm going to live for Him joyfully. No matter the circumstances of my life, I'm clinging to Christ. That's what some of us are doing. And then as we talk about Christ, others of us in the room perhaps, here's what we're thinking. When's this going to be over? When are we going to move on to the next thing? What are we going to eat for lunch? What time does the game start? What do I have to get done at work tomorrow? Because, because here's what the scripture says. Blinds the minds to the light of the gospel. That's what was taking place in Capernaum. And <clears throat> the interesting thing to note here, let's go back to Luke 4, is where this confrontation between Jesus and this demon takes place. You would think that if Jesus is going to encounter a demon-possessed man, right? We would think this, that it would take place in one of the pagan Roman cities and some pagan temple or some dark alley at some seedy place in Rome. But I want you to see where the demon-possessed man is. What does it say? 
He's in of all places. He's in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now I want you to think about that for a moment and just let that rest on your shoulders. Now, other places we find demon-possessed man, for example, we'll see him, legion, in the Gospel of Luke. He's chained up in the tombs. And that seems like, okay, I get that, I understand that. A demon-possessed man, he's cutting himself, he's screaming, he seems like he's howling at the moon, the people are scared to death of him. And that man's, okay, chained up in the tomb, we get that. But this demon-possessed man is in the synagogue of all places. The Bible says elsewhere about the enemy the devil, that he disguises himself as an angel of what? As an angel of light. So did you know, actually, actually, if the purpose of the enemy is to blind the minds of unbelievers to the light of the gospel, one of the most effective strategies to do that would probably be to take them to a place that for all intents and purposes, the light of the gospel could be proclaimed, but it's not actually being proclaimed but they think that it's being proclaimed. Are you following with me? One of the most effective strategies for the enemy then would probably in our day get people to go to a place, perhaps it calls itself a church, perhaps it even calls itself a Christian church, but if you actually go there and sit there and listen, the gospel is not being proclaimed. Now you say, well, how do you know that the gospel was not being proclaimed in that synagogue? And the answer to that is verse 32. They were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. What does that mean? This was none like what they were accustomed to, as they had gathered week after week after week in the synagogue. Now, sure, the practice of the synagogue, for all intents and purposes, should have been effective in proclaiming the gospel. But you ask yourself this question, who does Jesus have the most difficulty with in the gospels? It's the people who are the most religious, the Pharisees, the rulers of the synagogue. The people who should have known are the ones that Jesus, as he comes to deliver the captives, are the most captive, but they proclaim that they're free. Now, how do you, how do you free a captive who says he's already free? That's tough work, isn't it? And that's what's true of the religious people. So here we, here we have a demon-possessed man, and he's in the synagogue, but the problem is that he must not have known who that day's teacher was going to be. Now, good preaching ought to always, around the faithful, at least exhibit the heart response of an amen, right? Sometimes you'll proclaim, and every once in a while, and it's all right if you want to, every once in a while, right? Or anytime you want to, actually. If you, if you agree with something that's said, if something in accordance with the Scripture, and it resounds in your heart, you say amen. The opposite of the amen of the faithful is the oh no of the demons. What ought to be true is if we proclaim the gospel, if there are any demons present, they ought to say, oh no. Oh, I didn't know they were going to talk about that today. I didn't know they were going to emphasize that. So before we go any further, can we just say a few things? That if there were any demons present, they might not like it this cold out. I have no idea. I don't want to be trivial about it. Or, but let's say a few things that if they were present, they'd say, oh no. And by the way, the faithful can say, amen. Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. And Father of Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us from the foundation of the world that we, we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption 
according to the riches of his mercy, which he's lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us, little old bitty us, the mystery of his will, which he put forth in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, as a plan in the fullness of time to unite all things together in him, whether they be things in heaven or things on the earth. Listen to me, believer. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son. You hear us? The Lord Jesus, the son of God, in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk no longer according to the law, but according to the flesh. Now we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we used to walk according to the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who still is at work among the sons of disobedience. But God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us who believe. For it's by grace we have been saved through faith. It's the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one may boast. That's the word of God. Now I want you to notice in Luke chapter 4, the demon comes out at the word of God. The demon trembles at the word of God. Not on some silly illustration that I might come up with. The demon comes up, comes out, is shocked, is scared, is fearful when the word of God who's made flesh comes to proclaim the word of God. So what is it about Jesus that terrifies this demon so much? What is it about Jesus What is it about the scripture? What is it about the gospel that to this day sends the dark forces, the demonic influences running? Well, let's look at the scripture. And I think it says a few things. It's first of all, it reveals to us that the demon was terrified, number one, at Jesus' preaching. Jesus, did you know this, was a preacher. That's what he says, right? Look, look, it goes, it says, it says that he was teaching them on the Sabbath, verse 31. Go, go to verse 43 of the same chapter. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. The first thing that terrifies the demons is that Jesus is a preacher. Now, I want you to think about it. Is there any verb in our culture that carries a more negative connotation than preach, right? Anytime you get in a fight, somebody, not a fight, not a fist fight, but maybe a verbal confrontation, and you start to tell somebody some things, well, here, here's, a, here's a very frequently heard comeback. Are you preaching at me? As if preaching were the worst thing that somebody on the planet could do. That's the culture we live in now. And it's not a lot of fun to live in that culture when people ask you what you do, and you go around and you have to tell them this, I am a preacher. But you know what I am? I'm a preacher. Because, because I've been saved by the grace of God to proclaim the grace of God. So, so I proclaim the gospel prayerfully, hopefully. That's my intention as, as a pastor. Uh, and that's what was, uh, more importantly, what Jesus' purpose was. Now, we're not given here exactly what Jesus taught in the synagogue in Capernaum. It may have been the very same message he gave in Nazareth up, up earlier when he un, uh, took the scroll to the prophet Isaiah and proclaimed from Isaiah 60, 61. And, and, and again, Jesus, we're not told if he hears any amens, but 
he hears an oh no. Look at what the demon says in verse 34. It begins with sort of a strange uh, expression that's a little bit hard to translate into English. So at the very beginning of verse 34, this is a demon speaking, by the way, which is kind of strange itself, right? What would a demon say? But my translation, it says, ha! Or perhaps yours says, leave us alone. The expression is is, is letting us know that the demon is scared. The demon's terrified. And and so when Jesus begins to teach, the demon just screams out, leave us alone. What have you to do with us, Jesus of of Nazareth? Uh, In Luke chapter 8, if you're in Luke 4, just flip over. Luke 8 to verse uh, 38. We'll study this scripture before too long. I'm sorry, it's verse 28. I said 38, but it's 28. That's why it took me a moment. I was confused. <laughs> but look at Luke 8, 28. When he saw Jesus, this is the legion, the demon possessed me. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Same phrase. So it's an idiomatic expression. In the Greek, it's saying what uh, it's saying uh, pretty much leave me alone in a terrified sort of way. So can we just say real quick, because some people get a little bit confused about this matter. Some people when it talks about Jesus and Satan or the kingdom of God and the kingdom of of, of darkness, it's sort of like this, this rigid competition going on. Can, can you imagine a football game where the two teams come out and then one of them just lays on the ground and says, oh, just please leave us alone. That's what's going on here. It's not this uh, neck-and-neck competition. When Jesus shows up, the demons are terrified. So you don't have to be afraid of of the dark. You don't have to be afraid of what goes bump in the night, so to speak. Greater is he who is in you, if you're a believer in the Lord, than he who is in the world. You don't have to worry. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot be demon-possessed. The Scripture teaches that very clearly. The Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit filled. If you're a believer, you think that the demon's going to come by and swipe away the Holy Spirit? It's not true. You can't be demon-possessed. You need to guard against being demonically influenced, however. Uh, uh, so, so I just want you to see the demons are terrified of Jesus. And as Jesus goes along, they are fully aware of who he is. None of them say, now who's that? They all say, Jesus Christ, the Holy One. Now their, their primary task, they know who he is, is to blind you from knowing who he is. The gospel unveils him, as Paul says. Now, uh, see, see if I know I've got you flipping, but it's all good. So Acts chapter 19, go with me. Acts chapter 19. We'll start in verse 11. This is a scene from the ministry of the Apostle Paul when he's in Ephesus. We studied as a church family together through the book of Ephesians, but this is a little backstory about, about him. In Acts chapter 19, verse 11... It says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of, the, uh, of Paul. So who's doing the miracles? God's doing the miracles. Okay. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them. And notice, the evil spirits came out of them. Oh, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had 
evil spirit, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Fascinating one, they still know who Jesus is. Fascinating number two, they know who Paul is. They know he's one who actually proclaims the real gospel. They, uh, they understand he's the one who has authority. But then third, they don't even know who these men are, these seven sons of Sceva. Real practical application, if you ever find yourself in a situation where demons ask, who are you, just run, all right, just get, just get out of there. Because what happens next, the man was whom the evil spirit leaped on then mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. They clearly lost the fight, right? This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell on them all. They're aware. They understand who Jesus is. They understand who who Paul is. They know those who are involved in real gospel ministry. So first of all, what threatens the enemy, what scares the demon to death, is uh, the demons to death is, uh, is the preaching of Jesus. Secondly, it's the purpose of Jesus. Verse 34, here's their question. Have you come to destroy us let's answer the demon's question with one word yes that is exactly what jesus has come to do first john chapter 3 verse 8 the son of god appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil the living god is at work in your life if the works of the devil are being destroyed, if the idols are coming down, if the blindness is over. You know, right? If Christ is really at work in your life, you begin to see things differently. And things, the the purposes of the enemy are thwarted. Has he come to destroy them? It's exactly what he's come to do. What's that look like? Well, go back with me to Acts 19, unless you've left there, if you've left there. What's it, what's it look like in a place when God's at work? Same, same context, same scripture, same chapter, same place, Ephesus. Verse 21, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to, to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also go see Rome. Verse, verse 23, About that same time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. God's at work. People begin to hear about it. You heard about the way? Have you heard about the way? Have you heard about this church? The, the whole city's kind of in an uproar. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. I got to understand a little bit of background about the city of Ephesus. Their main selling point, as far as tourism goes, was one of the seven ancient uh, wonders of the world. This uh, temple to the Greek goddess Artemis, huge landmark. And then Paul comes along. And begins to preach the gospel. And here's what begins to happen. People begin to be less and less and less impressed or thrilled with or spending their money on Artemis. And this businessman whose whole business is making money off the temple of Artemis, he gets angry. So here's how you know if God's at work in a city. If those who profit through the selling of darkness and idolatry, their business begins to shrink up. That's when God's at work. It starts to affect the economy of darkness. 
He, he says, he gathered these men together. They're having a business meeting with the workmen and similar trades and said, men, you know what from business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Paul began to proclaim the gospel. And here, here's what they do. They, they, their business was making little uh, uh, keepsakes, so to speak, little, little idols of the big idol Artemis. Sort of like if you go today to New York City, you go to the Empire State Building, you'll leave. There's probably a shop right there that's going to sell you a refrigerator magnet or something, right, of the Empire State Building. That's what they're doing back then. Here, here's your Artemis magnet. Go take it, put it on your fridge. They didn't have fridge back then. Whatever they had, bow down to it, worship it. But then Paul starts to proclaim the gospel. And if we're going to put it in, in terms that we would understand, uh, the pornographer started going out of business. Nobody's buying their product anymore. The, 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 the television stations that all they do is broadcast filth over the airwaves, all their customers called up and said, I'd like to cancel my service. I'm not interested in that stuff anymore. They begin to have a crisis. That's what's happening here. The gospel, the gospel's changing hearts. And when hearts are changed, behavior changes. We can't get it backwards, but we don't want to stop short. Don't change your behavior to change your heart. Christ changes the heart, changes the practice. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come to disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be accounted as nothing. It's one of the great seven ancient wonders of the world. You see what they're, say, see what they're doing? They're trading in one of the seven ancient wonders of the world for the almighty God of the universe. The almighty God of the ages. That's what happens when the gospel comes and is proclaimed and the minds of the people are no longer blinded. That's his purpose. And that's the purpose that we ought to be about as well. Two other quick things that terrify the demons. One was his preaching. Two was his purpose. Three is his purity. Look, what they, look, look, look at how they describe him. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's his purity. When the light comes into a room, right, what happens? The darkness is cast out. Darkness doesn't ever overcome light. Light always overcomes darkness. So Jesus, the pure, righteous Lamb of God, walks in. And the demon, they say, whoa, whoa, that's not who taught last week. Where'd this guy come from? It's his purpose. I mean, uh, sorry, it's his, it's his purity. It's his purity. We live in a very impure time. But I want to encourage you. You heard the scripture, right? He chose us from the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He cleans your life up, purifies you, sets you back on solid ground. And then, uh, okay, so His preaching terrifies them. His purpose terrifies them. His purity terrifies them. And then lastly, his, his power terrifies them. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, verse 35, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in, down in their midst, he came out, having done him no harm. They were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirit, and they come out. Uh, one quick thing is to suggest to you that purity and power, they always go together. If you want to have great power in the Lord, it's always going to come in combination with great purity. 
There's no one who has great power in proclaiming the gospel. There's no power in a church that's, that's not pure. So uh, just, just give that to you. And, and then I want you to see that Jesus here, there is no uh, incantation. There's no ritual. There's no uh, long, drawn-out sort of uh, hodgepodge. There's no debate. There's no struggle. He speaks, and the demon comes out. That's his power. Jesus spoke. The demon obeyed. Now, the point of all this is the demonstration of Jesus' power over Satan and the, de- and the demons reveal his ability and his authority and his power to deliver sinners from their grasp. That's the point of this text. Every time you open up the scriptures, you say, well, what has it got to do with anything? Here's what it has. Their purpose, the enemy, is to blind the minds of the unbelieving. Jesus demonstrates he has authority over them. So the whole point is, those who are captive to the enemy can be delivered from the, from the enemy. And, and as this happens, reports, we'll see this over and over, we've already seen it several times in Luke, reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So in conclusion, just to ask a few things of you. Are you blinded or are you believing? Those are the, those are the options. Blinded by the enemy, blinded, by the light of the, blinded to the light of the gospel, rather? Or are you believing? Have you seen it? Have you heard his voice? Have you seen the Holy One of Israel? Now the demons here in tremble, the fear of the Lord, is upon the righteous who hear him, and yes, trembling, but then believing and then understanding. He's come here not to destroy us. He's come to destroy the works of the devil and to rescue us. Are you blinded or are you believing? Number two, in line with what Jesus does in the face of the enemy, are you proclaiming or are you silent? Now, the reality for us all is we're either advocates of the light of the gospel or we're advocates of the demons. (laughs) I mean, one way or the other. I mean, our aim as a church is not to be a place where the demons could come and be comfortable or the demons uh, uh, whose purpose is to blind the unbelieving say, well, you need to go visit that church because they'll, they'll say they believe the gospel, but it's a false gospel. We want to be proclaiming the real gospel. In your life, are you proclaiming or are you silent? Secondly, it's his purpose. His purpose was to destroy the works of the devil. So, so our question for us is, are we purposeful or are we just kind of wandering on a day-to-day basis? Is the purpose of God your purpose? To set at captives, the, the, the oppressed, set at liberty? The Spirit of, uh, of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said, to proclaim good news to the poor. Is that our purpose? Is that your purpose in your life? Next, Jesus reveals that the dimble, uh, that <laughs> the dimbles, the demons tremble because of his purity. Simple question for us then in response is, are we pure or are we unclean when it comes to our practice, our thoughts, what we look at, what we invest our time in? It's the Holy One of Israel. And again, that applies to us. He chose us to be holy and blameless before him. And then, lastly, he was powerful. So we'll ask ourselves, are we powerful in the Spirit, or are we weak? Um, The synagogue in Capernaum was never the same, I'm sure, after this. Our prayer is that this city will be transformed by the grace of God as we walk as Jesus walked. Well, let's stand together, and we'll pray together.
Well, uh, the Holy Spirit's at work at a time of invitation, but the forces of darkness are at work too. So let's take, take a moment to uh, bow before the Lord. During an invitation, what we do is simply respond to the Word of God. For you, perhaps it's an opportunity to stand for a few moments and consider the Scripture. To say, am I proclaiming the gospel or am I silent about it? Am I purposeful about the kingdom or am I just sort of wandering? Do I live a pure life by the Spirit, by the grace of God? Not, not some legalistic demanding works, but do, my, but do I desire holiness? And am I powerful? Not in of myself. I don't boast in myself, but boasting in the cross. Do I have a life and a ministry that's powerful because I'm pure and purposeful in proclaiming the gospel? Father, during these moments and during this invitation, Lord, I pray if there's anybody that is blinded by the God of this world to the light of the gospel, that you would, by your word, penetrate the darkness. And as we'll see in the scripture, Jesus can physically heal the blind to see. But even better news than that is he can heal the spiritually blind so that they can see him for who he really is, the Holy One of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, lead our time. Help us to be prayerful and humble to let the Holy Spirit speak to us and lead us to respond in ways that are appropriate, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.